The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. And welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and the following is part three of a three-part interview with Jeremy Gilbert about his new book, co-authored with Alex Williams, titled Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World and How We Win It Back. In the final part of our conversation, we talked about some of Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari's key concepts, including the assemblage and multiplicity and how their ideas inform Jeremy and Alex's understanding of political change and left strategy. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Democracy in the Political Present, a queer feminist theory by Isabel Laurie. In the midst of threats to liberal democracy, Isabel Laurie's new book develops a democracy in the present tense one which breaks open political certainties and linear concepts of progress and growth. Her queer feminist political theory formulates a fundamental critique of masculinist concepts of the people, representation and institutions. In doing so, she unfolds an original concept of a presentist democracy based on care and interrelatedness, one which cannot be conceived of without social movements' past struggles and current practices. Democracy in the Political Present A Queer Feminist Theory by Isabel Laurie is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Jeremy Gilbert is Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London and the author of Common Ground, Democracy and Collectivity in an Age of Individualism and 21st Century Socialism. His most recent book, co-authored with Alex Williams and the topic of our conversation is Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World, and how we win it back. If you'd like to hear the extended 90-minute version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. So you begin the third chapter of the book discussing the influence of the French theorists Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari the famous authors of Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus, and you discuss the influence of, uh, of them on, on your and Alex's thinking, and in particular, you discuss one of their key concepts, the assemblage, and you write that we can say that actually existing neoliberalism only ever functions through specific assemblages of social institutions, practices of government, technological apparatuses, and class relations, and that this assemblage always facilitates particular kinds of change for example, the privatisation and commodification of public services while retarding others. Can you explain how the idea of the assemblage isn't captured by the idea of coalition or alliance and why the neoliberal project, for instance, isn't usefully described 
in just a kind of additive sense of neoliberal politicians plus neoliberal institutions plus neoliberal cultural producers and so on? Well, yeah, this idea of assemblage, uh, in some ways, it's a sort of minimalist concept because it can just mean any collection of elements that function together in some way, in, in, in on any scale, in, in, in any context. And I always think in some ways it sounds quite banal until you try to think of alternative terms to use that don't quite do the job in the same way. And the reason I think that that additive approach doesn't capture the, the, the way in which neoliberalism works or the kind of thing that it is to the same extent is because it doesn't quite capture the extent to which this is a neoliberalism is a very is a coherence. You know, there is there is a certain coherence between all of those elements, and all of those elements primarily have to be understood as functional. They're things that do things rather than just you know statements or discourses. And but while there is a coherence, it's a, it's a complex kind of coherence. So. I mean, one of the big debates or one of the things we're responding to implicitly, I think we make it explicit once or twice in the book, but implicitly we're responding to this tendency amongst various thinkers and writers, particularly historians, it has to be said, to want to just dismiss the very concept of neoliberalism on the grounds that uh, you seem you people you people you idiots you theorists seem to talk seem to refer to different things by the name of neoliberalism so how i mean it's a really i mean it's something that serious historians like genu genuinely say like well how could you possibly say both new labor and thatcher you know were, were neoliberal for example to which my response is well by that logic you know you shouldn't use the word chairs either there's no such thing as chairs. Like, how could you possibly call a deck chair and a dining room chair and an armchair all chairs? Because they're different from each other <laughs> in certain ways. And I think that's a good analogy because the issue, you know, the issue, we're trying to get at the extent to which various things we call neo we can call neoliberalism are are ultimate are you know comparable to each other in certain ways, even though they'll be different in other ways, and really what makes them all neoliberalism or makes them all neoliberal or part of neoliberalism isn't the content, the discursive content, isn't the things that they, the people involved say necessarily, it's the things that they do, it's their functions. In the same way that what makes a chair a chair is ultimately its function. It's a piece of furniture for an individual to sit on. So that's why I think we, that's why we like this concept of assemblage rather than just because a, a, a chair is not just like, you know, a certain number of bits of wood put together. It's a certain number of bits of wood or other material put together in a particular way so that they can serve the function of being sitable upon. And so I think that's a good analogy with how, with how why we use this term assemblage. The other thing to say about it, and it's made explicit in that quote you read out, is that one of the things that's built into the concept of assemblage as put forward by Deleuze and Guattari is that assemblages are, are never merely static. They're always changing. So in that sense, I mean, actually, a, a chair is is always... The molecules that make up materials that make up a chair will always be moving. So a chair will not stay in, its, in a static state forever. But insofar as the way that we phenomenologically relate to chairs, they're, they're static objects, mostly. I mean, that's sort of, they don't really work well if they're not. 
Whereas an assemblage is more like a machine made up of moving parts, like a clock or something that is all that has to be moved, that is always moving and its elements are always changing, or just like a human body, for example, or a plant or any other organic thing. And again, partly we think this is a useful way of thinking about it because one of the objections people try to make to the notion of neoliberalism has to do with the fact that you know there are changes in the in the way in which neoliberalism operates like it shifts from as we talked about previously hegemonic forms of neoliberalism shift from make, appealing to authoritarian forms of conservatism to appealing to more individualistic forms of quasi-liberalism between the end of the 70s and the middle of the 90s and that doesn't stop them being neoliberalism um, so we find that concept really useful. We found it particularly useful for thinking about the historical experience of the post-war settlement in particular because of the way in which you know, post-war welfare capitalism to some extent cr- contains within it the elements which eventually destabilise it. You know, it contains a, an emphasis on be- developing the economy which past a certain threshold can only keep developing by intensifying consumerism and that itself it, it encourages certain kinds of individualism that ultimately un, un, undermine the solidaristic basis for the post-war welfare state, for example. So that's also another use of the concept of assemblage, the fact that it implies that it is composed of processes of change which are related to each other and identifiable and analysable, but are nonetheless processes of, of change. I mean, the the phrase famously used by Deleuze and Guattari is lines of flight. An assemblage is composed of its lines of flight, which is a uh, is a you know is is a is a phrase which makes perfect sense for them to use writing in the late seventies um, for an audience entirely of French you know philosophers or philosophy students who are coming from a particular phenomenological tradition. It's a it can be it's a very confusing phrase if you're an English speaker from a completely different intellectual and educational tradition in the 21st century. So uh, we don't dwell on that phrase too much. But if people are interested, that that's what they say. But all, they say, all they're saying when they say re- that an assemblage is made up of its lines of flight is that an assemblage, it, an assemblage is composed of its processes of change and transformation as much as its ele- the elements which give it stability and, and stasis. Going back to that point about the objection that's raised to the notion of neoliberalism because it characterises trends both on the the left and the right, uh, I suppose one way of looking at that is that you know that may lead to the assumption that there is very little difference between, um, say, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, and one often hears this that you know the the Labour right are red Tories and, and this kind of thing. But another example I was thinking of, which suggests that it's quite possible for certain assemblages to be operating within very different political contexts and seemingly you know, highly opposed contexts would be the different sort of developmental regimes that existed in East Asia through the Cold War. So communist China, but also the military dictatorship in, in South Korea, uh, authoritarian Taiwan before democratization and so on. And in those cases, we see in many ways quite similar economic uh, setups in spite of those political differences. Yeah, that's completely right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, they're all, I mean, the, they're very. I mean, they are very. They're very. I mean, in the between the late forties and the end of the twenty first century, all of those countries they're more or less all effectively one party states, pursue basically subjugating anything like meaningful pluralistic democracy as well as every other element of the 
the polity and the, and the society to a national developmental project, even though they're allied, they have different geopolitical allegiances and different ideological allegiances. Yeah, that's definitely true. So think about some contemporary instances of, of what might be described as assemblages. So you go on in the book to describe the assemblage that was called into being by Donald Trump and the coalition of interest that coalesced around him. What did that assemblage consist of exactly in your view? And, and what elements of that assemblage do you think tend not to be uh, discussed or written about so much or, or downplayed? Well, I don't think, I wouldn't say anything I would say about the, the Trump phenomenon is unknown to people or, or, or isn't even necessarily downplayed. It's just a particular way of talking about it, which can capture all of the, the way all of those elements work together that we're thinking of. And partly here we were drawing on uh, William Connolly's writing about what he calls, now what's the word? It's the Evangelical Capitalist Resonance Machine. So this is William Connolly, who's an American political philosopher and political theorist. And it, I mean, it tells you quite a lot about the difference between the institutional culture of political theory in, in America and here, that here he's, he's a really minor figure, like people don't really read him. In, a, in, a, in the States, he's probably the most famous and one of the most cited political theorists of the past few decades. And he is a, a follower of Deleuze and Guattari. He's, um, they've been central to his writing. And he writes in this book about the, the evangelical capitalist resonance machine. He, he, that is a sort of Deleuze-Equitarian terminology. And it's trying to get to grips with the extent to which, well, the sort of discourse, but not just the discourse, but the affective regime, the vibe, if you will, of emergent forms of evangelical Christianity um, it, you know, as I say, it resonates with, it vibes with certain tendency, emergent tendencies within capitalist culture, even if, outside some very specific examples, uh, the congruence between them isn't made completely explicit. I mean, you can look at really crude examples like the prosperity gospel churches and say these guys, I mean, they're just explicitly saying, you know, God is a neoliberal. Yes, and and they are sort of effectively running businesses themselves. That's how their churches are run. That's how, more or less, how they conceive of them in a fairly, yeah. you know, cynical way. But his point is that the, you know the, the way to understand the relationship between these things is, uh, yeah, he uses this term a resonance machine. It's partly trying to get at the. I mean, this is an old debate. It's a really old debate in social theory, the relationship, the historic relationship between capitalism and. Uh, and Protestant Christianity, for example, and the question of which comes first and which influence, which shapes which. And there's also a history of people trying to get at the sense that, well, they sort of, they, they co-evolve in some way. They're, they're isomorphic is one of the phrases that you can use to say they, they sort of change you know, together, they move together. And all this sounds pretty banal, it sounds pretty obvious, but actually these are all w ways of talking about things which can really get to grips with the complexity of social phenomena, which is quite difficult without some of this jargon. So with regard to the question of the Trump phenomenon, well, I think the elements making up the Trumpist assemblage are going to be pretty familiar to people. They include uh, the media ecology, the right-wing media ecology, uh, which has Fox News as its centre, but by 2016 included this uh, huge hinterland of of YouTubers and social media activists and influencers, which went on, which ended up being labelled the alt-right. 
and it included, but it also included the evangelical capitalist resonance machine. That was a key part of it. And again, in some sense, actually, the, Trumpism as a political phenomenon really proves right, I think, Connolly's claim that you have to uh, analyse that relationship as an assemblage rather than one of any very clearly identifiable discursive or ideological coherence because the, the evangelicals should, never, should not have supported Trump. Like, even on their own terms, up until 2016, the, you know, Trump was somebody who just broke all the norms. You know, he was clearly not a good family man. You know, he was clearly the kind of appetitive, sort of grotesquely, you know, oversexed, you know, hedonist, hedonistic figure that up to that point, you could say evangelicals had often sort of been in, loved, but they'd only loved in the moment of their contrition and shame and, and rejection of that lifestyle. And Trump was all about embracing that identity in this Berlusconiist way. And I suppose he, he wasn't even uh, politically reliable, right? I mean, he was a former Democrat not all that long ago and, you know, very much a sort of um, East Coast figure as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. East Coast figure. But this is the point, you know, people, you know, this is one of the things sort of Trap A Trap House made themselves famous by reiterating because it was just such a good point. You know, he was a, he's an Upper West Side fancy boy, you know, as they would put it. He's, you know, he had nothing in common. I mean, you compare him to like the previous Republican hero, George W. Bush, he could at least pretend sort of half convincingly to be this sort of cowboy. But, you know, Trump doesn't even, he doesn't even sound, he doesn't even have the right kind of voice for it. You know, he sounds like a kind of, you know, slightly effeminate, you know, posh boy from the from the Upper West Side. He's, he's kind of crazy. And yet, you know, he he, he got, you know, the, the evangelical capitalist resonance machine became a key element of this Trumpist assemblage. And I think it's all, it's, so I, those are the key elements. And also the elements, of course, they come to include just the machinery of the Republican Party, which gets behind him. They, it includes the, a large constituency of traditional Republicans. I mean, it's always worth reiterating that support for Trump, like support for Brexit, mostly came from the traditional reactionary petty bourgeoisie. But it also included, it also ended up including a very, a very small, but nonetheless politically significant constituency of voters who were just so turned off by Hillary Clinton and everything she had come to represent that they were willing to, for one election at least, they were willing to endorse Trump as this populist protest vote alternative. So all of those things came together in a particular configuration to make Trumpism possible. And I think it's always worth it's always worth remembering that Trumpism is absolutely a historical phenomenon that requires explanation. We can't just take it for granted. I mean, it was, you know, I'll never tire of saying it was a Simpsons punchline in the early 2000s, President Trump, even under the Cheney-Bush regime. The idea of Donald Trump becoming president was immediately recognisable as a satirical dystopian joke. Um and it, it came true, like it happened. I mean, it's like Bloodball or something becoming true. It's like Judge Dredd becoming, you know, coming true. So it does require explanation, and, and it requires a relatively complex explanation. And, yeah, that's why we think this notion of assemblage, um, building on Connolly's analysis, is really, is really useful for thinking about how that happened. And in terms of the, the state of that assemblage, today do you still see that as a viable assemblage do you, do you think it's plausible that, that Donald Trump could could run uh, get the Republican nomination and, and, and win an election 
Or do you think he's alienated a significantly large part of the assemblage? I'm, you know, I'm thinking in particular of, of sections of, of, of capital that swung behind him, and also just the rising resentment within parts of the, the Republican Party as well. Well, I just think the answer is probably, probably he can't for the reasons you just set out, but it will partly depend upon the behaviour of other constituencies and agencies. I mean, it was, it was the insistence on supporting the demonstrably useless candidacy of Hillary Clinton that, on the part of the Democratic Party establishment, that enabled Trump. Like, if they hadn't done that, if they hadn't insisted on backing Hillary, then Trump wouldn't have been able to become president. So it will partly depend on... So, so you, you would say, though, then, for instance, that, say, had Joe Biden been the candidate at the time, because he's able to come across as, 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 as a more sort of ordinary person or someone who can relate to ordinary people and who's less identified as, um, you know, so closely as a sort of 90s neoliberal that Trump could have could well have lost to a candidate like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know. If, if I mean, Biden, post-Trump Biden would have beaten Trump. But post-Trump Biden is also post-Bernie Biden. You know, he is a very canny political operator who took cognizance of the fact that Bernie Sanders had become the most popular politician in America for several years. So I'm not sure Biden could have done it in that election, actually. I, I, I'm not sure he would, he would have been able to under those circumstances. I think only Bernie could have beaten Trump in 2016, probably. Um, but, the, the, but, but now, post-Bernie Biden is is the biggest i think is the single you know biggest likely block to trumpism reconfiguring itself in a successful way because you know he just there just isn't you know tr he has i mean biden has been making s some significant concessions to uh various social blocks you know so probably enough to you know probably enough to mean that trump doesn't really have have a chance but we don't know we depend over the next 2 years i mean if if the Republican control of the House means that Biden really can't get any more significant reforms through in the next two years, and if there's sufficient alienation amongst you know, urban workers, young voters, that they're just not going to turn out to vote for him, um, then, then by, there is still a reasonable chance of Trump coming back. So, But I think it will depend... You know, I think... I mean, the thing is, this is sort of consistent with other stuff we've I've said on the show before, but... You know, it's worth reflecting that, you know, ever, really since 2008, certainly since 2010, we've been in a situation where really, the, the, you know, the, it's quite clear that the most, in some ways, I mean, in some ways, the easiest political coalition to assemble, the easiest voter coalition to assemble in either the States or in Britain would be one for a robust social democratic project. The problem is that there are the people with particular who occupy particular points of leverage in the political system have so much to lose from that that they'll do almost anything other than allow that to happen. But it's increasingly, you know, it, the situation just becomes increasingly chaotic to the extent that well, it's just there isn't any other sane, logical thing for them to do. I mean, you can see that with happening with the Labour Party in Britain. I mean, there just isn't any sane, logical thing to do for Starmer to do if he wants to win an election, other than to actually say, "Yeah, the Labour twenty seventeen manifesto is what we're going to do." But he's he and he, and he is sort of struggling. He is torn between actually, you know, doing that and the fact that if he does, you know, to do that is to make too many concessions to the left and too many and, and will anger too many powerful constituencies that he's afraid of. 
And the same is true in the States, really. So, But it's increasingly difficult to predict what those people will do, like what the DNC or the Labour Party leadership are actually going to do under these circumstances, because we know what would work for them electorally. I mean, I guess a more accurate thing to say is like we know what would work for them electorally, but elections, you know, electoral politics is not the only source and form of power. And there are these other sources and forms of, there are these other very powerful institutions like the right-wing media or or just the liberal media, like the various sections of capital who all very much don't want any of that to happen. And so these guys are really caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, they're caught between a situation in which it's increasingly obvious that there is a clear majority who just want a robust social democratic programme implemented. And a whole set of powerful constituencies that really don't. And under those circumstances, it's really, really hard to predict what they're actually going to end up doing. And the right, all the right are going to do, and that's all that Trump did really, is kind of rush in to fill the vacuum when they when they go wrong, when they make missteps, when they when they when they miscalculate, or when they just deliberately throw it because they don't want the they don't want to have to you know put themselves in the fire you know in the sort of firing line between workers and capital, which is, you know, arguably on some level, it's sort of what happened in 2016 in the States. I mean, arguably, you know, they went for Hillary, the Democratic establishment went for Hillary because the, just, I mean, just as the Labour establishment uh, destroyed Corbyn, in both cases, because ultimately, if it was a choice between allowing the right to win an election, and they themselves having to sort of take up the mantle of you know, advocates for a, as I keep saying, a robust social democratic program in the teeth of severe opposition from the right and from capital. Well, they would prefer the former scenario. So, but but I think now we're now we are for various reasons. You know, we're now in a situation where that choice is the scope for them to t- make that particular choice is actually less and less available to them. Like the, I mean, it's post Bernie, post Corbyn. It's, it is clear to them. It is clear to that polit- neoliberal technocratic political class that there is a, there are you know they risk they risk losing everything if they are really seen yet again as in sort of twenty as as sort of between twenty sixteen and twenty nineteen just to be the, one of the major roadblocks to the reform program that there's a, a huge consensus majority for. So we're just going to have to wait and see what they do basically. Do you think the most likely outcome is that the Starmer project, say, in, in the UK, that they will go into the next election charting some sort of course between Corbynism and between the Labour right, that they will offer something uh, because they are aware at some level of, of the changed political circumstances? Uh, and we've seen that, you know, to some extent through some of their policy offering, even if it's not what we would want in detail, certainly. Uh, but the trouble is, you know, that, yeah, they get into power on a somewhat left programme. But the likelihood is they will disappoint in office because they're not, you know, they're not prepared to defend that under attack. Well, yes, I think all that is the most likely scenario. It also has to be said right now, or this could easily change. Two years is a long time, and it will be probably two years till the next election. So all this could change. But right now, the most likely scenario is that's where we're going to be. But all, and also, Labour will have a, a large parliamentary majority. And that is a totally unprecedented circumstance. You know, the, the last time Labour had a big parliamentary majority, one of the conditions of possibility for it was just a complete acquiescence on the part of the public. Public, the public was, including the Labour movement, was exhausted from so say, eighteen years of Thatcherism. There was no, there were very, there was very few demands other than, I mean, people, I mean, the thing I always say, which is true, people just wanted the, the leaky roofs on the schools fixed. You know. So the level of demand wasn't very high. And also they were going into a period of 
you know, they were they were going into the second year of a five year economic boom. So they could just spend money and, and without raising without significantly taxing the rich, for example. Um, and then the last time we were in a situation which is politically, economically more similar to the present one, you're looking at the 1974 to 79 Labour government. And the, you know, the 74, 79 Labour government never had any legitimacy anyway. They lost the popular vote. The Tories, Heath actually got more votes uh, in 74. Um, they had a tiny minority. They couldn't govern. And to some extent, that actually restrained the Labour movement. I mean, although we remember now, because we've been told to remember this by a right-wing media for the past 30 years, we remember the the militancy of the 70s. I mean, the militancy was relatively restrained to what it could have been, given the circumstances, partly because people were afraid of, of Thatcher and they were and they knew that Labour had a weak majority. And the militancy largely didn't characterise the, the leadership of the unions. No, no, exactly. So if we are in this situation in two years, where you have this government elected, as you say, on a programme which is a sort of millibandist compromise between Corbynism and the Labour right. And you have uh, the highest levels of militancy amongst key constituencies, organised workers, youth uh, in particular, um, for decades, and and the most militant set of union leaders. I mean, it's arguably the most... In, there have always been individual militant union leaders, but broadly speaking, the, the, in toto, the current leadership of the union movement is probably to the left of where it's been, you know, at any time since the early twentieth century. So, under those circumstances, I just don't know. You just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's going to be you don't know, but it's going to be pretty unprecedented. I mean, and I think they're going to be under enormous pressure. They're going. To, we're going to be in. I don't want to, you know, preach optimism to anybody, but we are going to be in a position... I think it's going to be, you know, ugly and very difficult, but, we, I mean, we are going to be in a position to put pressure on them uh, in a way which, you know, hasn't really been possible to exercise leverage on a government at any time in my lifetime, actually, probably, if that's the circumstance. But all this could change. The Labour League could totally collapse, and I just think, you know, I'm one of the people who's been saying... Uh, for years, you know, ultimately, what governments do is more about the res- you know responding to the changing conditions of capitalism than it is to you know party politics or ideology. And you know, you just I wouldn't be a hundred percent surprised within the next two years to see the Tories just com- you know really you know land on a, com- a sort of complete return to one nation Toryism like, with significant concessions on things like public spending, the level of public debt they'll tolerate, the level of social taxation. I mean, there are clearly elements within the Tory assemblage who are pushing in that direction. There's clearly resistance to it. There are reasons why they might not do it. And probably the scale of people's um, loss of quality of life over the next couple of years is going to be such that they can't recover anyway. But we don't know. I wouldn't, yeah, I would not rule out like the, I would not rule out a Tories, the Tories winning the next election on a program which is sort of which is which is basically actually a sort of Labour right program. Going back to Deleuze and Guattari, so uh, another of their key concepts that you discuss is multiplicity, and you write that this term designates the way in which every phenomenon, every object, every being, every entity is always multiple in nature, always composed of diverse elements with diverse imminent properties. What's the political significance of that claim, which might otherwise seem quite abstract? 
Well, the political significance uh, op- operates at a number of levels. I mean, the first thing I would say is, <laughs> like regular listeners to the show will uh, be bored of hearing me make the point that like, the Labour Party is a really complex terrain of struggle. It's not like just this one homogenous unit that you either support or you don't. But on a, on a technical level, I would say uh, the, the inability to understand that is, is directly an inability to grasp the Labour Party as a complex multiplicity and a complex assemblage um, and the insistence on, on wanting to see it as something which is homogenous and we can say in philosophical terms univocal, like having a singular meaning, a singular voice. But it also becomes important for us analytically later in the book where we get into the, our development of the concept of interests because one of the central arguments of the book is that it's necessary to understand politics as fundamentally a, a contest between competing sets of in, a terrain of conflict between different sets of interests more than it is a, a terrain of conflict between competing values or identities. And the, But as we argue in the book... One reason why the concept of interests became unfashionable in both radical and liberal uh, political theory after the 70s is that the idea of analysing politics in terms of interests was associated with very simplistic teleological forms of vulgar Marxism, which assumed that you could understand every, every single individual in, or institution as just having one identifiable set of interests based on their position in the relation to production, their class position. And, our, and, and because it became apparent to people that, well, if you just, just think about individuals, you know, an individual can have some sort of political uh, interests uh, as a member of a, the working class or, the, or, the, or sections of the middle class or... And also as a woman, or also, say, as a person of colour. Those sets of interests don't all necessarily always coincide, and they can't be properly... They, you can't just reduce them to all the, all just different expressions of class interests. Um, well, the, the, well, I would say, because of that, uh, lots of people just wanted to drop the idea of interest altogether and think talk about other things like identities instead. And our argument is that's... It's not that identity is unimportant or that the work that came out of that move isn't useful, but fundamentally that's an analytical mistake. And the thing you have to really get to grips with is not the, that there's a problem with the concept of interest. It's the idea that an individual will just have what it's the idea that an individual will just have one set of interests as the problem. And so if you understand that even every person is a multiplicity, one of the things about them which is multiple is the various sets of interests they might have. And the fact that they, you know, their politics, what will motivate their political behaviour in particular is some sense, whether it's conscious or intuitive, of which of their interests or potential interests might be realisable under particular historic circumstances. So the big example, the classic example I give of this is the, in fact, it's, let's say, the very small but hist- but strategically important section of American voters who were white blue collar worker voters who voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. And I mean, people have sort of torn their hair out over this. And um, because what do you make of these guys? Like, I mean, one of the responses was to this was people said, "Oh, well, those they, that just shows that white people are all inherently racist. They were just sort of pretending not to be by voting for Obama." Because then they voted for this racist guy. And 
that's clearly just a that's just a ridiculously simplistic. It just doesn't explain why they voted for Obama anyway. Like why? You know, who were they? Why were they even bothered about? showing they weren't racist or something just on that jeremy sorry i can recall uh, around the time of you know 2008 obama's first election and a writer i think it was paul street was talking about his experience of talking to white uh, obama voters and he described how some of them talked about wanting to vote for him uh, in order to i forget the exact quote but to sort of to to make all the talk about race go away and that his election would in fact support their quite unfounded conclusion that, you, that the US was becoming a sort of post-racial society. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, that's true. I, I think, and I think that is a phenomenon that can be accommodated by the, our model uh, to a certain extent. But our model of this situation would be that, well, look, uh, in, an in, even an individual voter or an individual, say, white working class voter is a complex multiplicity which means they are made up of various elements, but also various potentialities. So they have a potentiality. Um, and also, they, you know, they, they are the bearers, if you like, of complex sets of interests, um, some of which can be realised under some circumstances and, and some under others. So there are certain historical circumstances under which uh, it might be possible for them to realise their interests, say, as members of the working class, through the implementation of a as I keep saying, a robust reform package or, or something even more radical, which would serve to, you know, to change the position of class relations in America and you know, empower the entire class. Um, but under circumstances where that doesn't seem very plausible, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen, uh, they might also, they might then you know, vote for a sort of... Um, yeah, they might vote for a racist program because they they also have a potentiality to be racist under circumstances where their tiny little sectional privileges as white workers um, are the thing they want to defend because they don't think that any more radical uh, program lifting up the whole class is going to be implemented. And I think in the circumstance you're describing, you can say, well, yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think. I think. Um, I think you have to say that was, you know, that did express. I mean, I always think that, you know, I think that did express a genuine desire. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be in a post-racial America, I think. There's nothing wrong. I don't think you can condemn people for that desire. And also for recognising that in a certain sense, you know, it would be, you know, it would be in their interest in their, and, and also in the interest of people of colour to be in a post-racial America. I don't think it was ever really fair to say that, you know, well, that they were just sort of voting, they just wanted it to prove that there was no such thing as racism by by getting Obama elected and that as if they were somehow then going to win an argument and not have to worry about racism. I think, yeah, they of course they wanted to will into an existence a post-racial America, but there's nothing wrong with doing that. And it was, of course it was naive of them to think that just by voting for Obama that would happen. But I also think, you know, the evidence, all the evidence is, that all the strong evidence is that mo for the most part, most of those voters, most of those people, um, if you take, you know, your white working, your blue collar Democrat, the kind of the people who voted for Obama and voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, when they voted for Obama, if re his race was an issue at all, it was their assumption that a black guy wasn't, hopefully wasn't going to just renege on his commitment to something like social democratic reform in the way that Clinton had. You know, it was the fact that he seemed to, that Obama seemed to have this authenticity. You know, he had that church-trained oratory, he had that Chicago old-school Democrat vibe combined with it. And, and they thought, this guy sounds like he means it, like he's actually going to deliver reform. Like, that was the reason it was a factor. 
But I think the key point here, and you know, coming back to this question of multiplicity and interests, is that in those under those different circumstances, the same voter can be behaving in a in a way which is is always in accordance with some conception of what their interests are and what the, the future could hold for them and their community and their country. But they can be operating at different scales, like depending on what they think is actually plausible. So if it seems plausible in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, with this wave of support for this charismatic young black politician from Chicago, you know, it seemed plausible to people that we might actually get something like a social democratic reform program, um, then they're going to vote for that. And the same people might, after eight years of Obama doing nothing, delivering nothing for people, might also draw the conclusion that, well, you know, we're not going to get any of that. But at least Trump, at least by sort of, at least by restricting immigration and, and shoring up my privileges as a white person, uh, Trump is just might prevent my, my life getting even worse. And this is where the this is why the concept of multiplicity is important because the same person can, in a certain sense, like have both those sets of interests. They can have a set of interests as a white person with white privilege and as a a worker, as a member of the working class, sharing class interests with all the rest of the the working class, and they can be acting fairly rationally in accordance with those interests in either instance, and depending on what they think is the most plausible outcome of you know, voting a particular way. And that this is why the notion of multiplicity is so important, I think. And I think it is, I think it is really important. I think it's a really important concept for understanding, uh, say, white racism in particular, that you just, you just have to get away from statements like white people are all racist or white people are not racist. Or, you know, it's that, of course, all people contain, do contain a potentiality for racism and a potentiality for non-racism and anti-racism. And the job of politics is to activate those potentialities. It's not to de- it's not to legislate, you know, to declare forever, you know, that one constituency or just one individual is this thing or is not this thing. It's to create situations under which their their potentialities to be one thing or another are realizable. And so, for all those reasons, I think this notion of multiplicity it is very important. You argue that the idea of multiplicity is, is very much anathema to a lot of mainstream political commentators. And as you say, that they're often very wedded to the idea of particular demographics and classes having you know, very static political priorities and views. But do you think that also characterises some people on the, on the left to a degree? And, and, and if so, is part of the reason for that that we tend to struggle to reckon with the idea of multiplicity because we don't tend to view ourselves as harbouring multiple political potentialities. We think of ourselves, perhaps even rightly, as having much more fixed political coordinates than is true of the broader and, and less politically active public. Yeah, I think that's true, yeah. I mean, I do, I do think the... I mean, of course... You know, the thought of multiplicity and the idea that you have to understand sort of difference as, and heterogeneity as inherent features of being. It was an idea developed by philosophers like uh, Deleuze, Lyotard, Derrida, people like this, really in, in primarily um, as a critique of or in response to what they saw as a kind of teleological and metaphysical tendencies on the left. Um, you know, and in, within and within Orthodox Marxism, and it was always, you know, it was it was really the start. I mean, I'm always saying this, but because and it's quite, it is it's something of a simplification, but it's not too much of a simplification to say. You know, all, all of those guys, to some extent, were reacting against the dogmatic Stalinism of the French Communist Party. Um, 
and so yeah so it simply is the yes absolutely and um you know the and the challenge the sort of philosophical and political challenge uh, is within radical political theory over the past few decades has been to take on board some of those critiques and to take on board the fact that well, it clearly is the case that in the 20th century certain strands of revolutionary politics and Marx's politics and theory did become just really just sort of hostile to the to ideas like multiplicity and difference in a certain sense that they associated either with bourgeois degeneracy or liberalism or what have you to take on board all that without sort of throwing out the, the baby with the bathwater. And of course, that's one of the the, claim, the theoretical claims we make in the book. Really, is that you know the concept of interests was thrown out, was the baby that got thrown out with the class essentialist uh, bathwater. So yeah, so absolutely, I mean, absolutely, it, it is the case, and and I also think, I mean, I do think, I mean, a lot of people on the left, you know, they are very clearly motivated by uh, by us, you know. A, a sense of identity, you know, and, and a sense that they want to have the identity of this, you know, of a figure who is the sort of m- m- the moral militant, the revolutionary, and it's understandable, but it's debilitating in key ways, in key strategic ways, and to some extent, what we're doing in the book actually is bringing together two of the main conceptual currents which have been drawn on since the early twentieth century to try and break out of those some of those conceptual impasses you know the Gramsci we're not the first people to synthesize Gramsci with Deleuze and Guattari but not that many it's not a it's not a common uh, set of flavors to mix together but one of the things they have in common is that the Gramscian tradition and Gramsci himself and Deleuze and Guattari and the philosophical sources they're drawing on and some of their followers have all been committed one way or another to getting out of some of the cul-de-sacs which are certain kind of teleological metaphysical uh, Marxist thinking can lead you into. Going back to the assemblage, so in the chapter you go on to describe the assemblage of the post-war era of, of Keynesian stimulus, state-owned industries, industrial planning, and, and a relatively generous welfare state. And you write that what is most striking about this specific instance from our perspective is that the assemblage under discussion included not only the most militant section of the working class, but also the most progressive section of the middle classes and a specific section of the capitalist class. And regarding the latter, you're there referring to industrial capital as opposed to finance capital, which you you describe as being severely constrained at that time. The so-called post-war consensus, and obviously there's a lot to be said about whether that's the right term or not, but just using it for, for a moment, that consensus ended up in an impasse where workers were demanding higher wages in response to high inflation. The unions lost their ability to impose uh, wage restraint. And presumably a left-wing way out of that situation would have been to, to radicalise and start to head in the direction of uh, workers' control of, of industry and, and, and trying to democratise the broader economy. But presumably any such move would have meant losing the industrial capital part of the assemblage, since it's, it's hard to think that the managers and owners would have given up their institutional prerogatives. Or, or do you disagree with that? Um, well, I mean, it, de- it would have depended on the circumstances. I mean, it probably would. But, you know, what happens in the Soviet Union is that, you know, the, the momentum towards revolution seems so strong and the weakness of competing forces is so demonstrable that uh, quite a large number of managers and, you know, of capital just go over to the communists, you know, and just look to become managers of industry, uh, you know, within a, in a socialist republic. So I don't think you can say that's given. I don't think you can say that's given. I mean, if that was, if it was ever going to happen, 
the a whole section of like industrial, you know, senior layers of management within industrial capital in Britain were going to become convinced that they might as well give it up and get on board with the revolutionary socialist project. If that was ever going to happen, it was in 1947. So I don't think that's a completely, I don't think that's necessarily a given. I mean, I don't think that was likely. I mean, it just don't, I think it's just clear that Britain in 1940s wasn't in a pre-revolutionary situation. I don't, I mean, it wasn't. And I, I don't think, I think it's clear that it never, I mean, I don't, I think it's clear that Britain never really has been, to be honest. Yeah. So you need a, you know, a quasi-revolutionary situation for anything like that to be. Yeah. Possible. And you need, you just, you would need mass, you need mass support for revolutionary politics in, in a way. I mean, I just, I just think the thing that you always have to keep in mind in all these contexts I mean, I'm always saying we shouldn't just go on about Russia, but that is the, the benchmark. Look, in revolutionary Russia, there is mass support in the army. I mean, the mass support, not some support in the army for revolutionary socialism. Like, we're not talking about the sort of, the highly, you know, the extremely kind of intellectually self-confident kind of, you know, can't, you know, some of the soldiers... You know, in Britain, it's true. I mean, in the British Army, you know, there was a move to the left. You know, there were there were communists agitating. There were socialist reading groups, and that is one reason why Labour won the forty five election. But there was absolutely nothing close to the kind of mass support for explicitly revolutionary socialism that there was in in the Russian Army in nineteen seventeen, um, and that is what mass support for socialism looks like like not just loads of people being quite pissed off by austerity which is the reason why you know socialist appeal was declaring britain to be in a, in a pre-revolutionary situation in sort of 2014 or whatever you know it's not it's just not what it looks like so and that's not what things look like. so there is such a thing as a pre-revolutionary situation and that's what it looks like what it looks like is really like a significant section of the population being explicitly endorsing uh, revolutionary socialism and that just that wasn't the case in the 40s you know? and but again as i've said on the sh- and as, as i've said on the show many times you know, it's very important to, to learn the difference to understand the difference between that a pre-revolutionary situation and a situation where there is significantly raised levels of consciousness and demand such that very significant reforms might be achievable in the in the foreseeable future and one of the problems with some sections of the corbynite left between 2017 and um 2015 and 2020 was they couldn't tell the difference between those things you know they couldn't tell the difference and they couldn't conduct themselves appropriately to the latter scenario and and understand how it was different from the former scenario on the idea of you know having a section of the capitalist class within any sort of progressive assemblage you've sort of talked about the possibility of trying to break up the alliance between silicon valley and, and and finance and whether you could you could get some of the tech sector sort of on board with the progressive projects. I mean, you know, I imagine that part of the reason people would be so suspicious of, of the idea of trying to include a capitalist fraction within within such an assemblage is that it would be perceived as a, a, a drag on radicalism. I mean, you, you give the case of, of Russia, and we could maybe say the same about China as well, that sure, in, a, in extremists, certain sort of high-level technological experts or managers were prepared to come on board, but they were then able to be a drag on the radicalism of those of those projects. They were able to sort of parlay their kind of cultural capital into into a position where they could say, well, you know, you really need to defer to us experts. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, there you're talking about a revolutionary situation. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. The, the historic example we're referring to with the idea of progressive sections of capital being a, a, an element of the assemblage is, is that post-war capitalist assemblage where 
Indeed, industrial. I mean, what part of the, one part of the terms of the post-war settlement is that the power of finance capital will be radic- radically constrained by historic standards, and it was. And industrial capital would be privileged by government uh, over finance capital, really. And that was part of the deal. Part of the deal was that those guys would get a certain privileges in return for conceding, uh, sig- historic again historically very significant. Um, proportions of wage of profits to wages and the social wage, you know, tax, you know, tax funded benefits. So, and I, th- I think you know our argument that probably we only say probably, probably any radical any radical coalition, radical assemblage that is going to be able to uh, put for implement a serious reform program. I mean, really within my lifetime, in the next few decades, is going to have to, in an equivalent way, include uh, some progressive sections of capital. And the reason we say that is simply because we just think we're we clear... The alternative... I mean, all the historic precedents are either that happens or you're, you are in a situation of absolute revolution against capital. And for the reasons I've been giving, we're, just, we're nowhere close to the latter. And I just think we're not... Get, even if you could imagine, plausibly imagine the latter happening within the next few decades, uh, we're going to have to do something about the climate crisis before that could come to fruition. I, I, yeah, I think, because we're, we're not, it's not that we're not where we were in 1917. We're not even where, I mean, if you want to compare us to the Russian experience, we're not even where people, things in Russia were in 1895 in terms of the extent and popularity of the radical left. So, so I just think now... That's a kind of mathematical argument, really. It's an abstract and mathematical argument. It's not that there are sections of capital I can definitely point to and say, look, I think they're really cool, they're really progressive. And I just think, you know, logically that has to be the case. And so it's up to, I mean, probably, you know, it, it will, we do say in the book it will require much more fine-grained sort of committed analysis, probably by people other than us, to, to work out like where, what those sections might be and to work out what it would mean to make alliances with them. I just think objectively, now objectively, because for all that we might resent their power and hate and mistrust them, like it's not clear that Apple, for example, has any real interest in in the planet in in the planet burning. Like it's not clear that it's good for them in any way. So probably, you know, yeah. But but apart from just the imperatives of of short term capital accumulation and shareholder value and so on, I mean that that has an effect on. Yeah, it does. But like they're they're an example. They're a massive institution that they've got massive capital reserves, uh, and they don't really need to. They don't really, uh, you know, they they're all. I mean, they they are dependent on some really bad things. I mean, they're dependent upon. Obviously, we know near slave, you know, almost slave labor in China, and. They're dependent on extra- certain kinds of mineral extraction from Africa, which are completely unsustainable and completely awful. But I strongly suspect, but also, but you, I'm not comparing them to some ideal of like an of Mondragon or something. You know, I, I'm not comparing them. To, I'm comparing them to the oil sector, the oil extraction sector, to the south, the, to the companies that are deeply invested in the persistence of the Saudi regime. You know, and comparing them to those guys, and saying those guys have got to be abol- I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia has got to be abolished. You know, within our my life, I mean, I'm fifty, in my early fifties. Saudi Arabia has got to be abolished. You know. Uh, 
in any meaningful sense within my lifetime if there's any chance of human civilization surviving the next century that is the urgent task and so i strongly suspect that some of these companies you know even once we recognize like big companies with you know based in california that just have a different set of interests to those guys they are probably going to have to end up being part of the coalition, which does the work of at least you know, abolishing the Gulf, you know, abolishing the power of the Gulf states. Now, I understand people are going to listen and say, well, none of that's going to happen. We just want to completely abolish capitalist social relations. Capital is now in, uh, in capitalism is now in a period of secular, of secular stagnation and absolute decadence, which means that it's possible for to unite the global working class and simply completely abolish capitalist social relations uh, that is a different analysis we don't agree with it and that's that's why we think that probably there is going to have to be some sort of uh, alliance with relatively progressive sections of capital and of course you have to you know when we say progressive it, you know this is always in relative terms this is always about rates of change and interests indeed being realizable at particular timescales of course we you know we borrow this phrase progressive sections of capital from Gramsci. And for Gramsci, like the Ford Motor Company, at the time when he's writing his essay on Americanism and Fordism, is a progressive section of capital. It's not that Henry Ford isn't an awful person who likes Hitler. It's not that he isn't doing things that are regrettable, but he is... I mean, in Gramsci's terms, I mean, Gramsci's writing in fairly in sort of teleological Marxist terms, actually, that he's just, he is innovating and he's developing the forces of production. Like, it really doesn't matter what his personal politics are. It doesn't matter what the political orientation of his, him is. It doesn't matter that he, you know, hires Pinkertons to you know, try to break up unions. Like, it's almost despite himself, actually, because he's advancing the forces of production. Uh, he is to some extent... And, and concentrating uh, workers in, in a place where they can organise as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I sort of think, that, and I do sort of suspect that quite a large part of Silicon Valley, actually, would, would have to be seen in the same terms. That they are, you know, despite themselves and despite all the bad stuff they're doing and despite individually being completely awful people, uh, they are advancing the forces of production in ways which I think are absolutely going to be useful. I mean, from this point of view, you know... I'm, you know, I'm one of the people. I don't agree with the account of the contemporary platform economy and digital culture, which just thinks it. We think it's just all a, a disaster, and it would have been better if the internet had never happened. You know, I just don't agree with that. I think every single phase of the development of capitalism since the before the industrial revolution has had terrible social and you know, psychosocial consequences and has also enabled like amazing things to happen. You know, Frederick Jameson says, you know, capitalism is the best and worst thing that's ever happened to humanity. So I just can't envisage a scenario in which we get a Green New Deal, which is the thing I think we, can, we could plausibly get in the next 20 years um, in, in Britain, say Europe and America and Britain and other places. I don't see a scenario in which we get that without, and also, like, we, we manage to completely not, we not just do the amount of damage we need to do to the fossil fuel sector, to the real estate sectors as well, and to the power of finance capital. And we also manage to, like, completely abolish Silicon Valley and, like, nationalise all the platforms and turn Apple into a giant workers' co-op. I think we need to do all those things eventually, 
I just don't see a scenario where we manage to do all of that stuff in time to save the, the planet. You, you don't see any sort of contradiction between uh, your position and having a what, what's called the, the communist horizon, say. It's a question of temporality and, and, and uh, tactics. Yeah, exactly. And it's also, it's not that you don't um, need things like anti-monopoly uh, legislation against Silicon Valley monopolies and... Um, and massive levels of labour organisation in the tech sector. Because again, the, the historic precedent is that well, all of those things happened, the way we got things like the New Deal and the welfare state after the war is all of those things happened at the same time. You know, that to some extent, those the industrial capital wasn't just, you know, we didn't just walk up to them and, you know, give them a present on a plate. We also put for, we forced them to accept concessions but through successful labour organisation, through militancy, through revolutionary struggle in many contexts. We forced them to. We put them in a position where, you know, they were better off, you know, they, they didn't really have a lot of choice. Oh, they were better off accepting this sort of deal between labour and the state and them than they were continuing to be a sort of subordinate section of fraction to finance capital as they had been previously so and we need to engineer a kind of a comparable situation i think we probably need to engineer a situation where indeed to some extent we do of course we absolutely have to limit the power of silicon valley we have to push back and we have to threaten them with doing even more damage than we've already done to them once we manage to do some in order to sort of get them into line you know, it's not that I think we're just going to persuade the Silicon Valley CEOs to sort of, um, you know, support some measure of anti-capitalist politics because that's the only way to save the planet. No, I don't think that at all. I think we're going to have to engineer a situation where their potential allies within the rest of the capitalist class are so completely delegitimated and weakened that they can't really form an effective alliance with them anymore. And they are so threatened, but they are you know, so worried about what we might do to them uh, if they don't cooperate, that they will cooperate um, with the project of you know, m doing what would be necessary to mitigate climate change without just descending into a sort of authoritarian technocracy. But, uh, you know, I might be wrong about all this. It just That's just what we, Alex and I, think is the most plausible scenario, given where things are right now. And do you think this all depends very much on a, a pretty radical improvement of, of, of the position of the, of the unions and an increase in union density and, and the, the expansion of the unions much more into, into the private sector? Or do you think there are other forms of organising that could augment the existing unions to, to achieve those goals? Um, well, I don't know. Well, I think it's, you know, it's all of the above. It's always all of the above. So I think both traditional and new and innovative forms of union organising need to be need to be developed and encouraged i just don't see how i think and i think we need to be willing to try all sorts of things as well as building on the forms of organizing that on the basis of historical experience we know to work so there's clearly still a place for quite traditional forms of organizing i mean it's it's clearly the case just from recent experience in, in the us that you know highly committed face-to-face community-based workplace organizing is still more effective than anything else in many contexts. But, you know, it's also absolutely the case that, well, of course, we can't, we can't afford not to try using all of, you know, using things like, like platform or, you know, organising to, to, to organise workers, especially workers in sectors where they don't, people don't uh, meet together face to face very often. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. 
If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.